Around the world, black and brown communities are disproportionately affected by pollution and climate change. Flint residents are irate. Their water is not safe. We're in what's known as Cancer Alley in Louisiana, an area between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, lined with petrochemical plants and refineries. Scrapyards there are Agobloshi, maybe one of the most polluted places on Earth. It's no coincidence that factories and toxic waste facilities have been built near poor communities and communities of color. It's part of the larger systems of racism that exist all over the world. And for a long time, the people most affected by environmental threats have been largely absent from the broader conversation. I'm not trying to just have uh, fancy rubber chicken dinners and, you know, give me a bunch of awards I can put in my office or, or let me find a tax write-off and create a foundation. Like, all that is pointless. Like, I really wanted to find a way where I can create a better future for my kids and all kids. From foreign policy and Doha debates, this is The Long Game, a podcast about the power of sports to change the world. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Muhammad. American football player Ovi Mahaley played nine seasons in the NFL. That's a long time in a league where the average career lasts just over three years. But the legacy he wants to leave behind has nothing to do with football. Ovi spoke with the long game's Karen Gibbon. So this is a conversation about football and the environment, but I actually want to start with a cartoon series. Tell me about Captain Planet. Why did it resonate with you when you were a kid? Yeah, Captain Planet, just just the name like puts a smile on my face. I am Captain Planet. Go, Go Planet! Captain Planet, that was my jam. That was my joy. That 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 was something that I really looked forward to and was fully involved in the storylines and the plots and the characters and the villains. There's a pesky flare of tears! Get them! And it's something that had a huge part in kind of making me who I am today. So there was one character in particular that you especially related to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kwame. I still don't think this is a good idea, but I cannot let you go on your own. Thanks, Kwame. Kwame's African. I'm African-American and African. My parents are from Nigeria. Mom and dad are from Nigeria. Seeing somebody who looked like me was something that was just so cool, especially back then, because you didn't see in the 80s that many African-American or prominent African-American characters that didn't fall into a certain stereotype. Oh, no! Let our powers combine. Earth. So with Kwame being, you know, earth, you know, earth, you know, strong and and being powerful and part of the team, and I wanted to understand, you know, why they are fighting these bad guys and trying to save the rainforest, and, and you know, what is this whole sustainability environmental thing? It, it made me curious and started me down a journey. So as I understand it, uh, playing in the NFL was not really your original plan. So what did you think you were going to do with your life? Well, I thought I was going to be a a doctor like my dad. I saw him every day wake up late nights, early mornings, 
He was gone at Christmas, you know, missed my birthday because he's delivering babies to the hospital, literally bringing life into the earth. And he just always was working hard for his family to try and give us a better life. So I wanted to be a doctor just like him. Most immigrant children can say that doctor, lawyer, engineer, that's it. You got to be one of those. You're not going to be a poet or a writer or or an art. No, that's that's not going to work in, you know, immigrant families. So. I picked medicine out of the three and was was full speed ahead. I was pre-med at Wake Forest University. I was taking anatomy as a college football player, cutting up cadavers and fun stuff. And I studied for the MCATs for two months. My sister is a psychiatrist a year older than me, gave me all her books. And I had every intention of taking the MCAT and going to med school. Wow. So uh, despite all that time that you actually spent studying, the Baltimore Ravens drafted you in the fourth round with the 2003 draft. Take me to the moment when you received that phone call. Were you waiting by the phone? Did you expect it? I was waiting, Karen, and waiting, Karen, and waiting much longer than I wanted to because I was counting my money before I even got it. I was like, all right, they say that I'm the number one fullback going to the draft by USA Today. And and so if I go mid-second round, I'll get about $1.5 million signing bonus. And with that, I can get this, that, and the third. I had my car picked out. I had the vacations I was going to take. So talk about waiting by the phone. I waited in the first round pass. That's fine. Second round pass. All right, that's fine. I'll, I'll go third round. Third round early. Third round mid. Third round, the end of it. And that pass. And back in the day, in 2003 when I was drafted, the first day was the first three rounds. So I had to wait a whole other day till the fourth round came, and everyone was like, it's all right, Obi, it's okay. You, you'll be the first guy taken in the fourth round. So fourth round goes. They're in the middle of the fourth round. I'm still waiting. They're almost at the end of the fourth round. At this point, I'm walking, fuming, saying I'm going to make everyone rue the day that they didn't pick Obi Mahaley sooner. And they finally called me fourth round. They gave me a call and saying, would you like to be a Raven? I was like, yes, I'd like to be anything that's in the NFL. Absolutely. Gosh darn it. What took you so long? When they called, it was one of the happiest moments of my, my life because every little kid who is out there, you know, juking and high-stepping and stiff-arming and, you know, hurtling and leaping and catching footballs, they want to do that in front of, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people, millions on TV. And I actually had a chance to do that and seeing the the pride in my parents' eyes, even though they wanted me to become a doctor, uh, having their son, you know, do what 1% of people in the world, probably smaller than that, get to do, made them so happy, so proud, so joyous that it it, um, made me uh, feel the same way. So it was during those first few years in Baltimore that you first started your foundation, but the environment was not your focus. So what was your mission? Yeah, so when I first started my foundation, it was just really trying to focus on education. So many times where you grow up, the zip code that you live in determines your success in life. And that shouldn't be. It just really bothered me that the the tools that allow you to be successful aren't even being disseminated, aren't aren't even being given out in, in certain communities. So my foundation really was just about trying to impress upon kids the importance of education, how it can get them from their current situation to a better one, and how it can really uplift their whole family. So in 2007, the Atlanta Falcons made you the highest paid fullback ever in the NFL. That must have felt really good. 
Oh my gosh, did it. <laughs> that those things happen to other people. It doesn't happen to this Nigerian southern boy from Charleston. The coolest part I always tell the story, uh, Arthur Blank flew his private jet to Baltimore to pick me up and I really wanted my parents, you know, my dad is oldest of 12, mom's oldest of 11, and how they grew up. It's just a, a, they've come a long way and they they've never been on a private jet neither did I. And so I just asked Mr. Blank if we could go to Charleston and pick up my parents. He was like, "Um, okay, sure. We went to Charleston, my hometown. My parents were dressed up in their Nigerian garb and the headdress and the, the whole, the whole thing. And they came like it was coming to America. It was great. They were, Arthur Blank sent a limo to pick them up. And so they walked down uh, the red carpet, walked into the jet. We had the steak and lobster and just the you know high class service. And it was just a really cool thing because my, my, oh gosh, I'm, uh, it's, it's, it still chokes me up now. Cause my, my, my mom was crying like half the thing. I was like, mom, stop crying. This is a really happy moment. She's just like, I just can't believe this. I just can't believe this. I just, you know, she's like, thank you, Jesus. I, I, we don't deserve this. Like we've been too good to us, you know, giving all this honor and glory to my son and, and we give it back to you. My mom was just like, I was like, mom, like I get it. Like you're happy, but you're making me cry. And so she was just uh, a mess the whole time, but she, she got together when we got there, got to Atlanta, you know, another limo went to the facility and, and signed a one eight zero zero several zero contract. So it, it wasn't just about the money; it was about the, the 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 respect and the ability to really, really do what I wanted to for my family and for the people who I cared about. Well, it was in Atlanta that your story connects back with the environment. So you met Laura Turner Seidel. She's an environmental advocate and the daughter of Ted Turner, who is, of course, the founder of CNN and also the guy who came up with the idea for Captain Planet. So where did you meet Laura? And did you really sing her the theme song from the cartoon? I absolutely did. That's one thing I do remember because I I lit up when I I realized who she was because I think it was a... Some event that Arthur Blank had some of the Falcons go to. And, you know, at some of these events, you know, you, you put on the face and you shake hands and kiss babies. But, you know, you, you're not really expecting to meet really impactful, influential people. It's just sometimes it gets really stuffy. People don't let their guard down. But uh, someone introduced me to Laura. And when they told me that they had a show called Captain Planet, I said, wait, what? Like Captain Planet, Captain Planet? She's like, yeah. I said, oh, I love that show. And again, it took me back to childhood. So I sang the whole thing and I was a huge smile on my face. She's like, you are serious about this? Like, yes, yes. This is a huge part of my childhood. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because you have to sing the song for me. (laughs) No, it's just simple. It goes, Captain Planet, he's our hero. Captain Planet, he's our hero. Going to take pollution down to zero. He's a power magnified. And uh, so I, I, I mumble the rest, but but the beginning is just it comes with just those chords and the chorus and the action, people zooming around. And they did a great job. Any kid who likes action and adventure and story would be all over it. And I was. I might have given her a hug. <laughs> I knew her. I was just like, I love what your your dad did. And she asked me, um, oh, you're a planeteer. So so what are you doing for the planet? And I said, Duh, I help kids with education. She's like, okay, that's that's great, that's good. But what are you doing for the planet? I'm like, uh, planet's good. Like, you know, like you're you're doing good stuff, and you know, your dad and 
you know, Al Gore is doing some cool stuff, and you, know, you don't need me for the planet. Something to that nature. Don't don't quote me word for word, but I, I remember her letting me know that there's so much work to be done in this space. There's such a need for people who you know don't look like me in this space because we need everybody. Uh, we need all hands on deck, and I, I love to kind of educate you and share with you what exactly is going on. And to her credit, she did. She took me to. More webinars, seminars, conferences, talks, you know, luncheons, brunches. The whole time, I just soaked it all in and realized that, wow, I was really wrong when I said that the environment is fine and it's good. There's a lot of work to be done, and I want to be a part of this work. And as you were learning all of these things that you didn't know about the environment and environmental justice, you also learned, as I understand it, how it was especially relevant to the kids you were already working with, right? Absolutely. I learned about environmental racism. I, I knew about racism, but I didn't know environmental racism was so prevalent. Environmental issues disproportionately affect black and brown people because they're lower income sometimes and because they don't have the ability to fight back. The landfills, the coal plants, you know, the polluted areas are built around black and brown neighborhoods. These kids are dealing with, you know, asthma and other issues where they can't focus and concentrate in school. It's just a a, a downward spiral that they deal with. Just, just the more I learn, the more I realize that I have to find a way to use my position. And again, after getting this great contract, I, I could do anything. I could work on anything. But where could I be the most useful? Where could I really uh, leave a dent? Where could I, most importantly, leave a legacy? And I found that to be in the environmental space. You're listening to The Long Game from Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Mohammed. And now back to our conversation with former NFL player and environmental activist Ovi Mahaley. So, Ovi, in 2012, your first daughter was born, and that, too, is a story about the environment, right? So tell me what happened. Yeah, my, my first daughter with my wife, my second daughter was born, but Nasia was born, unfortunately, premature, and she was itty-bitty. I don't know how small she was. She was just so small and and just so precious and you know, fit in the palm of my hands, and I, I wanted so much for her to just be able to you know, come outside, breathe, come home with us and, and get all these wires out of her. She had some respiratory issues and they had to, you know, pull all these tubes and wires. It was, it was, it was rough, uh, to be honest with you. Um, every day after practice, I go to the NICU. She was there for almost a, m- a month and a half, almost two months, just fighting for her life, trying to grow up and trying to, uh, be healthy. And I was excited to take her home. And, when we were getting her packed up and getting her ready, uh, I think we were like almost to the, to the car. Doctor came rushing to us and said that the air quality in Atlanta right now, you know, it's fine for for you and me, but you know, for your daughter, the parts per whatever particles in the air, you know, could be harmful, even deadly for your child with the respiratory issues she's been having. And I, I just was floored. I was angry. I was annoyed. I was irritated. And I, I just didn't understand how anybody in charge could let things get so bad to the point where kids can't breathe the air 
you know, I had the best crib. I had the best, you know, baby food. I had the, the best car seat. I had the best everything. I couldn't provide, you know, her breath of air and I couldn't protect her. And it was because I wasn't doing enough in the environmental space. In fact, I, I, I had this crazy idea that still someone else would deal with it. Someone else would take care of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm new to the Falcons. I need to focus on football. Like, you know, I, I'll do a little bit here and there. And even meeting Laura was, uh, it was great. But then, you know, like we all do, we get excited about something, but we don't really do as much as we should do about it. And then did the same thing happen when your son was born? Yeah, same exact thing. He was born early. He had to stay in the NICU, not because uh, he needed to grow or any other issues. It was just because of the air quality in Atlanta. And they told us again, you know, your son has respiratory issues just with the smog alerts that come uh, off and on. Even though they're low-level smog alerts, we don't think that it's safe. So we just kept him in the NICU. And both those situations really, really irritated me. It kind of pissed me off because... I feel like if I would have done more at an earlier stage, not that this situation wouldn't happen, but I can I can at least know that we're heading in a direction to make sure other kids don't have to deal with this. And so after being just irritated, angry, upset that you know I couldn't throw money into the air and fix it, I, I really recommitted myself and my wife uh, recommitted ourselves to do more in the space and not just talk about trying to create change, but actually do it. So how did the birth of your children change the work that you do? Well, it, it really pushed everything into uh, hyperdrive. We we started, uh, I think we did our first green camp after like a year or two after my daughter, where I had the first environmental football camp. I just knew I wanted to do something. And I knew that we have a global problem. We need a global solution. And I wanted to bring more people who look like me who are dealing with the negative effects of the environment, climate change, global warming, the whole thing. I wanted them to be part of the solution. And I knew that walking into an African-American elementary school, middle school, high school and saying, hey, guys, let's talk about the environment will get me laughed out the gym or laughed out the room uh, in most you know, black schools because they're like, Mr. Mahaley, are you serious? That's that that white people stuff. They ain't, ain't nobody talking about the environment. Ain't nobody hugging trees here. Ain't, ain't no hippies and peace and love. Like honestly, I I've had not one but multiple African American kids tell me that's a rich white issue. That's that's their issue. They they got time. They got the luxury. They they feel bad or bored. They they just want to go and do this uh, environmental thing. We got real problems. We got real issues. We got real things we got to worry about from you know, violence to to drugs to deal with poverty. Like, we don't got the time to talk about the environment. And they were absolutely right. It, It made it more difficult for me to have a compelling conversation because even though they didn't have time to deal with it, it was still dealing with them. The hurricanes, the fires, the floods, I already talked about some of the asthma issues just it it's not waiting for the fact that they don't care about it it's still a slow moving monster that is negatively affecting black and brown communities so i wanted to teach them how to make green by going green so we we talked about in the football camp you know we talked about green jobs we talked about you know how they can uplift themselves and their family uh, by doing right by the environment we talked about you know finding ways uh, to recycle that helped them 
to save money or make money or, or, you know, just clean up the place they live around. And we just try to find, you know, fun ways to make this something to where they instinctively do right by the environment. I'm like, it doesn't cost you any money to, to do this. This is something that you can do for free. Turn off your lights, use less water. Because so like, I can't be, we can't buy the electric cars, Mr. Mahaley. We can't get all the paper straws. and We, we don't have access to all the stuff that white people do. We, we, we don't. We, we, we can't do that. And again, I understood. I said, I want to meet you where you're at. The first thing that we have to do is to get you wanting to be a part of this movement, wanting to really be part of the solution and understanding why it's so important for yourself and your family and for those who come behind you for you to not leave this up to someone else like I did. And we got that uh, message across, not to everyone, but to some people. It's just a spark. You know, Karen, you just have to like find what makes people tick and find how to get them to have that light bulb moment and saying that I'm not going to stand on the sidelines. You know, to use a football reference, you know, I'm not going to wait for somebody else to make a play. I'm going to decide right now that I'm the one making the play. I'm going to help win the game. I'm going to score the touchdown or make the tackle and save the touchdown. I'm going to do something. And so I, I wanted to help these kids get the green light bulb moment. I wanted to help these kids kind of, you know, understand now that you're excited about this, now that you want to do something, here are some resources to help you make a difference. That's great. That's great. I mean, I know for me, when I think about protecting the environment, it seems like just such this huge, impossible task. Yes. And you are working with kids who are already, as you say, juggling a lot. They're dealing with a lot. Yep. So how do you convince them that this is something that they can change, that they can impact? I talk about 100 yards is a long way to go when you're on the other end of the field. But it's about taking it, you know, inch by inch, foot by foot. You know, you fall forward, you move forward. You, My wife likes to say this, you fail forward. Everyone's going to make mistakes. But you, if you're always failing forward, you're going to get to your goal eventually. And with these kids who have other issues that they're dealing with and sometimes they don't even have the time to be interested in this, I, I, I tell them about how, how you make time for what's important. Once I convince them how important this is, I, I teach them how to make time. And the biggest thing that always gets them excited is there are so many environmental jobs and you can really make any job now sustainable. You know, you can be uh, from sustainable chef. You can be, you know, sustainable uh, trucker. There, there's a, a thousand and one ways for you to make your job more environmentally friendly. And all that does is usually save you time, save you money. But most importantly, it's going to help save the planet in the long run. So getting them to become creative and realize how they can, you know, find ways to be the first or to be trailblazers, especially because it's not as crowded. The diversity is something that everyone is looking for. And if you can be a new face and give a new perspective in these fields, you're going to be a wonderful bonus to anyone's team. Mm, yeah. So in some ways, your story has sort of come full circle. Tell me about Gridiron Green. Oh, love Gridiron Green. Love, love, love Gridiron Green. I just wanted to create something that would give people the same, you know, warm and fuzzies that I felt watching Captain Planet, that same excitement, the same, you know, wonder, the twinkle in my eye by watching someone that looked like me 
in an environmental cartoon, I wanted to get them that again with Gridiron Green. I remember going to Comic-Con. I remember this very clearly. New York Comic-Con, huge Comic-Con. I'm I'm just excited I have a comic book at Comic-Con. I I felt so blessed and and so cool. I I used to walk around, yeah, I have a booth over there. That's that's, that's my comic. Your comic? Yes, my comic. That's my name on my comic. I had people stop by. It wasn't just black people. It, It was all types of people. It was just... Even like, you know, the white kids seeing that, oh, wait, black people are in the environment or there's a black superhero. No one's ever seen, you know, a sports environmental black superhero. I Googled it when I was creating Gridiron Green and there isn't any major one out there. But it gave people just like, you know, Barack Obama did when he became president, the the real reality that, hey, you know what? We say anybody can be president, but, you know, if anyone can be president, why has there never been a black president? Oh, well, there is a black president now. And people like really, really believe that, wow, black people can be president of the United States. You know, we, we say, hey, you know, the environmental space is for everybody. We all belong here. We're all, you know, supposed to be involved. You go to conferences, 90% white. You go to events, 95% white. You go to, you know, most, uh, unless it's like a specifically minority-led event, most environmental pictures you see, it, it's... We say we're inviting everyone, but we don't see everyone there. But when Gridiron Green was created, and I went to Comic-Con everywhere else, it was something that allows people to say, I can be in this movement. I see someone that looks like me that's doing things in this movement to where it's normal, it's expected, it's something that's celebrated. And was that the Comic-Con where you met Chadwick Boseman? Yeah, I think it was. It was. Oh, my gosh. That was the coolest thing ever because Black Panther had just come out or was coming out. Either it was coming out or just had come out. I don't do this all the time, but uh, I definitely used my whole NFL All-Pro Falcon status because there was a huge line. I had to get back to my booth so I can sign my own autographs and man my own booth. So I told one of his handlers, I was like, hey, hey you know, I'm a... Yeah, I'm an NFL player and a big fan of uh, uh, Mr. Bozeman. And, you know, I want to see if I can get a picture real quick before. It's like, oh, I don't know. I was like, well, come back this time. I was like, All right, I'll come back this time. I was there early. I waited. And they let me sneak in the line so I didn't have to wait at the hour-long line to get his autograph. So I got an autograph. And then, you know, they're like, no picture, no picture. I was like, let me get one picture, one picture, please. So, you know, I, I dapped him up and turned to the camera. I, I got a picture that I, I posted several times. We, we had like a a 60 second conversation when there are people just waiting behind us. But I'm a large individual, so they weren't yelling at me to move that much. And, you know, Chadwick's Chadwick. And we just, I remember he talked to me about football being great. And I said, your comic book is, is amazing. And I told him about mine. The whole moment was really special for me because Black Panther, as we all know, was just a, a huge moment in comic book or, you know, movie history as far as, it being Afrocentric, Marvel, superhero. Obviously, Grand Green is not anywhere close to Black Panther, but I, I felt like in that same vein, I was trying to do a similar thing to bring attention to the, the role that people of color can play in the environmental movement. We've been mostly talking about the U.S., but everything we've been talking about, environmental racism, the fact that most of the people in this space are white, and the fact that most of the people affected by environmental problems are not, that's true all over the world, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, A thousand percent is a global problem and needs global solutions. There's no reason why only a, a small fraction of our population should be mobilized, which is, I think it's a great word, mobilized to fight this issue. 
Why are we only catering to certain people? Why are we only going to certain places? Why are we only creating events that only some people can be a part of? That it makes no sense whatsoever. And, you know, it, it, it boggles my mind. And I had to be really frank at a couple of conferences where some people got offended. And I, and I said, I'm sorry. I said, hey, environmental movement. Hey, leaders of the environmental movement. You've known the environmental movement has been a very white movement in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And why has there not been a more concerted effort, not just one where you make a pledge on the third page of your website and say I'm all for diversity inclusion, but why has it not been a more concerted effort to make this movement more diverse? Something to where when I go to uh, sustainable brands or green biz, two great conferences where I had a chance to speak at, and I look out. I can't count the people who look like me like on my fingers and toes. And I told them uh, at, at both those conferences, I want to come back here in five years, in 10 years, shooting three years, and see the people in the crowd look more like the people on this planet. Because that's when you're going to see really radical change. What do you hope comes out of all this work that you're doing? Like, what is the legacy that you want to leave for your children? Um, legacy is simple. At the point where you know I leave this earth and, and go on to be with God, I want to have my kids and more importantly, my grandkids say, thank you for getting hundreds of thousands, hopefully millions of people of all colors excited about being involved in the environment. Sport has that power. Sport has that ability to bring people together for a common goal. When you use the power of sports for this, anything's possible. That's it for this season of The Long Game. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Muhammad. The Long Game is a co-production of Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. We'll be working on another season of The Long Game. If you have ideas for future episodes, please write us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tag us on social at Doha Debates. This episode was produced by Karen Given with help from Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Jafid Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Metha. Check out our show notes for more information on how to support the Ovi Mihaly Foundation. Make sure to follow us on Apple or your favorite podcast app, and please leave us a review. To learn more, subscribe to Foreign Policy, a global magazine of news and ideas, or visit Doha Debates, a production of Qatar Foundation.